0: This episode is sponsored by Podgo. We use Podgo to monetize all of our podcasts and get paid within twenty four hours. So if you're a podcast want to get paid, be sure to check out Podgo. That's p o d g o dot c o. That's Podgo dot c o. And be sure to enter our name in the "How did you hear about Podgo?" section of the application. See you guys in the episode.
1: The language of the universe.
0: But I don't understand it.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Math and Physics Podcast. I'm your host, Parker.
0: And I'm Ray. And we welcome you to episode number 61, where today. We are back with a History of Physics episode. Whoop, whoop. So yep. this was uh, quite uh, quite requested from us. It was actually Einstein was heavily requested on, uh, on a History of Physics episode. And uh, so today we're going to be talking about Einstein and Bohr and Niels Bohr himself. So,
1: yeah, yeah this is the mm-hmm. third episode of the History of Physics yeah. The first one, we did uh, Newton and Behind Richard him. Feynman. Yeah. And then after that, we did Fourier versus Taylor. And then now we're doing Einstein Bohr, which is cool because they kind of went head to head in the quantum discussion. Exactly. Which we are going to talk I about, I was just going to say, course.
0: yeah. I was mm-hmm. I was just gonna say, uh, people actually were requesting Einstein and Turing, and a lot of people liked that comment. I was wondering, and to be honest, I was we were going to do Turing, but then as like you know, we were just thinking about the structure, like we were just thinking like they have really not that much in common, like you know they're in kind of different sectors and stuff like that. For anyone who might be mm-hmm. familiar with Alan Turing. So, you know, they don't have that much. So I just thought and we just thought that, you know, Bohr and Einstein would be quite a phenomenal uh, comparison or not comparison, just discussion about both of them and their impact in the scientific
1: community. Yeah. And of course, Einstein has done wonders for uh, the physics community. But, you know, a lot of people idolize Einstein and a lot of people who aren't in the science community itself they're like oh Einstein is this like crazy scientist but there are tons tons of scientists that are you know intelligent in different ways Einstein was very you know in his head thought experiments thinking about things that you can't really like you can't really just set up an experiment on the go and do, you know, mm-hmm. like special relativity, for example, which I'm sure you're going to talk about later. Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, all that, all that good stuff that we mm-hmm. are... A lot of his ideas, yeah,
0: as you were mentioning, a lot of his ideas are, you know, so like hypothetical, not not hypothetical, theoretical. And, you yeah. know, in the, like in his in his head that, you know, really can't be reproduced in real life because that's also the essence of the, you know, the thought experiment. And, but they you know, have a been lot tested his, though, which and, is...
1: Which is yeah now
0: with the, our technology but obviously yeah. at that time no, at the time it was you tested know, when, as
1: well yeah there was wasn't actually, this, i mean
0: at the time for but for, yeah. for for some of his experiments like the thought experiment about weighing that light box for example like i'm yeah. just giving like those kind of thought experiments but for example you can't ever really ever really do that to you know that level of precision with yeah. the instruments that we have but like the thought still exists you yeah know, but so that's for, what's for
1: example for general relativity they tested it during an eclipse because you're yeah, actually, I'm, I'm gonna. Yeah. I was gonna talk about okay. that. Yeah,
0: so that th- right. that's yeah, that's that's a little more macroscopic changes for sure. Yeah, so, those you, we those we can test
1: before we um, actually do what get about into the comment. The, yeah, before we actually get into Comments. the episode here, uh, yeah. so we are now up to eighty-three hundred followers on Spotify. So that's great. Other than that, I think we're at like a hundred thousand like no sorry one hundred and eighteen thousand downloads now so thank you so much to everybody that's been downloading our podcast listening to our podcast and actually while you were talking right i did pick a comment of the week because i realized (laughs) that we hadn't picked one before starting the episode but no worry not i was just trying to look (laughs) i just looked for one too (laughs) worry not worry not um so yeah (laughs) um if you do want to have your comment shouted out here make sure to leave a comment in the youtube comment section because we pick the comment of the week under last week's episode so make sure to do that if you know if you want to say something nice a little i don't know constructive criticism. anyways this week's comment comes from divisible by zero who was also there during the live stream so thank you so much to everybody who actually joined the the live stream i was looking at the same comment We actually did our Q&A yesterday, which we live streamed live, of course, on um, Instagram. We tried to do YouTube. That kind of failed. But uh, anyways, uh, so the comment is, all right, the ending of the video was the biggest mic drop with an explanation of Fourier transformations. Um, Yeah, uh, whoever explained it to you did a great job. Actually, nobody explained that to me. I kind of like made that whole thing. Well, I, like I, of course, I read it. I learned it from somewhere, but nobody like explained it to me. Anyways, that wasn't part of the comment. Um, so <laughs> if you made it, makes sense. Okay, as as always, much love. Enjoy listening to you guys at work. P.S. First comment. Ooh, nice. Ooh, <laughs> ooh, nice. Very nice, nice stuff. Nice. Nice so yeah, thanks for the comment. What uh, do we just start? Do you have anything to say? Let's get into it. Let's get into. The, the beginning of these geniuses,
0: let's just say. I think, G- to be honest. I don't, genius. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> to be No, that, there's no way. No, no. <laughs> no, but to be honest, though, like, I don't like using... I, I think that word is kind of overrated, you know, because, like, it can really be thrown around a lot. But I think it's definitely applicable here. Like, these two men revolutionized our idea of... of of physics and especially as like we're going to get into like Bohr was you know focusing on a lot on quantum theory he broke a lot of that and Einstein himself you know had a significant impact throughout physics and and it's and it's and it's going to always be that way you know these guys have made these significant discoveries that you know will last because they've been proven so let's start with let's start with Einstein so Einstein famously born on pi day March 14th in 1879, and uh, that's basically all I know about his birth. Uh, he was uh, quite uh, quite a child, I believe. His parents actually thought he was going to turn out slow because he had a lot of language problems. He couldn't talk, and like you know, a lot of his you know skills were you know a much younger mentally aged person than they were when he was older. So you know, they were a lot just a little worried. Little did they know. Little did they know, but. Uh, <laughs> So he continued to, uh, I believe, when he was 16 years old, he gave his first entrance exam to the uh, famous Polytechnic University in Zurich, that is now uh, now known as ETH. I'm not gonna try and pronounce that, but it's it's, uh, it's 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 called ETH. And he actually failed his very first examination. Interestingly, a lot of people think, and I know this is a myth with a lot of people, that Einstein was bad at math.
1: Not true. I think that
0: just like <laughs> I think that' just to make people feel better about them being bad at math. but no, Einstein was quite phenomenal at math and physics. However, he failed the examination simply because of his language skills. So he actually he I, I believe like he topped the math and physics section of the uh, of the of the examination, but he basically failed miserably failed in the language section, so he didn't he couldn't pass the whole thing. So he failed out of that but uh, but I believe a few years later, he then uh got admission in another in in the same university? No, wait, which university uh, did he get admitted to? Um it's a little little sad here. But um yeah, so he was in Zurich and then he went to a whole uh there there was a whole military situation with him, I believe. And yeah, mm-hmm. he, he moved to a teaching post, but where did he go to school after that? Did he continue at Zurich?
1: I believe it was the same the same place
0: i think it was because i believe he taught there as well because i remember like going to uh going to switzerland and and seeing the school where he taught at and i believe it was it was in here so it's probably one of these universities and uh, anyway so obviously now we know him as a very successful scientist and we're gonna get into his contributions but that's just you know a little bit about his his early education and uh, just like him as a child Let's mm-hmm. let's hear a little bit about
1: Niels Bohr. Yeah, so for Niels Bohr, he was born in Copenhagen and in Denmark, and actually on the 7th of October, 1885. Now, what year did you say Einstein was born in?
0: Einstein was born in
1: 1887, 1879. 1879, yeah. So they were relatively close to each other, right? So, yeah, yeah. Like the... We're going to talk about this later, of course, when we get into their actual work and all that stuff. But um, like the, the discoveries that were being made while they were alive, they were kind of at the same level, right? Like either in university, graduated university, postdoctorate, all that stuff. And so you can see like as discoveries were being made elsewhere, those things influenced their works and so on. So you can kind of You can kind of see that come into play later on. So anyways, um, Mm -hmm. at 18, he started his undergraduate in physics at uh, the University of Copenhagen. And it was never a doubt that he was going to go into physics. He, of course, you know, you you find an interest. He, we could probably, you know, figure out the classic question, uh, you know, if we end up... uh, you know, I don't know if there's like a deep mm-hmm. fake type, uh, type deal. I <laughs> actually imagine a little bit of an aside, you know, um, you know about GPT-3, the, um, the AI who like knows, like conversate, who has like conversational skills and all that stuff. Anyways, it's, uh, I, I'm pretty sure I read about the fact that it can like impersonate anybody. And so someone did it with, with Einstein. So he was asking him questions. And it was answering as if like the per- the the AI was Einstein and giving like answers based on Einstein's work and Einstein's life, and it actually could answer questions about physics and all that stuff. Anyways, that would be kind of interesting to see. Like, but where yeah, this goes it would, it would have to future. do a
0: lot of work behind no, behind the person like, yeah. that it's obviously well, trying it's, to emulate. It's
1: it's like it's like Google, you know, you type in the answer and it answers, but it's different. You know, it's like it's like a. I forget the yeah. name. Like a Interesting. Like it's like Siri, but it's just way better. You know oh, I so I mean? you
0: can't like ask it. Yeah, you can't like you ask can. it
1: original questions. You can. You oh, can. you can't. Yeah, yeah. Oh wow. Anyways, um. Oh wow. So yeah. Okay. Uh, I was gonna That's say impressive. Uh, he's actually Neil's Bohr of course. Um, he was born into this pretty rich family. His his dad was a physician, and his dad actually had um a laboratory that Niels Bohr would do experiments later on in his career. Um, So at the end of his uh, undergraduate uh, experience, he actually wrote a paper or more like an essay on surface tension. And we're not actually gonna go into that very deeply, but he ended up uh, submitting it quite last minute and he won, it was quite a phenomenal paper. And then later on he added to it and published it and yeah and so after that he got his doctorate degree or phd in 1911 and his like final dissertation was on the electron theory of metals so that's awesome what about einstein wow wow so um i did
0: uh, a lot more history on his on his actual scientific papers than him Unfortunately, because I thought, I mean, again, because I guess point of this episode as well is to, you know, kind of talk about how they have reshaped our thinking of science, a lot of them especially. So I think, I think the, most, uh, the most notorious thing, especially when we're talking about with Einstein, maybe we can get into it, is the year 1905. Mm-hmm. Now, the year 1905 for Albert Einstein was also known as Anus. Mirabilis. Now, I might not be pronouncing that correctly, (laughs) but it translates to Year of Miracles. Now, you might be wondering, well, what is so miraculous about this year and Albert Einstein, right? In this one year, Albert Einstein changed science, basically. Now, most people, you know, it takes them quite some time, but I mean, obviously, I'm not saying that he didn't take a long time to work up to these papers, but in this one year, Albert Einstein released three extraordinary papers that would then go on to revolutionize science. So we can start with the very first one. So in March of 1905, Einstein releases the quantum theory of light. Now, this is quite revolutionary. Now, remember, Planck, Max Planck, Planck, I, I, I keep messing up because it's, it's Max Planck uh, was very famously known about uh, deriving his emission spectrum and radiation spectrum for for um, for objects that basically for for, you know, black bodies. And, you know, the, the the Planck spectrum, for example, is very well used in black body radiation and understanding when I get, when I say black body, I mean, any body that is that has some temperature above absolute zero will emit radiation based on the planck spectrum. So planck was huge in that regard, right? Now Einstein comes up and he's like, "Well, let's try and see what we can if we can apply this to light as well. If we can try and break up light because remember at this time light was thought of simply to be a wave, right? It was kind of known that all electrons and or not known but it was thought that Again, atoms and electrons weren't really a thing. So any subatomic well, particles were... That's sorry? not
1: perfectly accurate. Like, you said was that a, at the time, light was thought of as a wave. As a that's wave. Not, that's not true, actually. like Wave-particle duality was
0: in 1920. But even, even further that back,
1: eight. like in the 16-1700s, um, Newton actually thought that light was a particle. And then yeah. also people... like. Uh, Christian H- Huygens, I don't know how to pronounce Huygens. it, but, um, Huygens, yeah, sure. Uh, with the, uh, double slit experiment, he concluded that light was a wave, but, you know, it's still, wasn't no. but really that was later. That was 1923. That, that was later. Point. Sorry. Did you? Yeah. Because <laughs> Wait, again, are you the, you, are you saying that the double wave, the double slit experiment was in 1923? Obviously.
0: Young's double slit experiment, the the whole wave particle duality was after after Einstein had already proposed that that light was available in packets, right? Because the whole quantum theory of light in 1905 had proved yeah, I think that's very that you know false. <laughs> what I'm I'm quite sure that uh, that the uh, that the double slit experiment occurred after. I mean I mean to be honest, I could be wrong. Maybe you can show me. But oh, I'm pretty oh, sure really. that
1: uh, yeah. So when Thomas was the double Young, slit experiment? Thomas Thomas Young in uh, 1801. 1801. What was I reading? It was 19,
0: 1925. Yeah. I was nineteen twenty three. I read the wave particle uh, nature
1: 1927 of light. Nineteen twenty seven was was Davison and and Germer that demonstrated that electrons have the same behavior. Oh well, I guess
0: that was a little later, but. Well, again, a big part of Einstein's quantum theory of light, well, was basically classifying light into these packets of quanta, basically saying that, well, light doesn't travel continuously, but it has a discrete spectrum. And this discrete spectrum he he devised using the Planck spectrum. So if you actually see the energy equation for light, it has discrete intervals of, of, of Planck's constant times frequency, HF. So E equals HF. Is like a, is like a very famous equation that Einstein came up with in this quantum theory of light. And again, maybe okay, maybe I mean uh, clearly I stand corrected. He w- he wasn't the first one to prove that or to to show that it came in packets. But what he did was he defined this de- that this defined, this definite spectrum that light will always follow, and that was a very important idea to then discover the photoelectric effect. Right? The photoelectric effect is basically when light hits a certain metal with what is called a work function, but basically a metal with a certain you know, uh, with certain properties, let me just say that. If light hits it at a certain energy, at a certain frequency, the metal will emit electrons. So you are able to run those electrons through a wire and then we'll get electricity. So basically the idea of a photovalve or like, you know, like your, your solar panels was come from the photoelectric effect, which again comes from the fact that light travels in these discrete quantities, right? So that was a big thing that he did in... Uh, that was one of his first papers. Maybe we want to get into Bohr. Maybe we can go like back and forth with some
1: of their papers to mm-hmm. see if uh, to okay. see if they stack up so with one, one of another. The, one of the best things... Uh, I don't know, this is very subjective, obviously, but one of my favorite contributions from Bohr to the physics world is actually the Bohr model of the atom. And so when you're in high school, you're in in chemistry class, you'll learn about the Bohr-Rutherford model for the atom. And what you learn is that there's a nucleus, which is positively charged and is, is quite massive. And then you have these lighter negatively charged particles that orbit around, uh, the nucleus in certain, um, how, how do you, how do I say this? Like, you know, it's the two eight, eight, the two eight, eight, uh, mm-hmm. electron distribution. Like the configuration. Like, yeah. The, con- the configuration. configuration. Yeah. And so, um, Bohr's, Bohr's model for the atom is it, it follows the same, um, it's along the same lines. I'm pretty sure like the Bohr-Rutherford model is slightly different from just Bohr's model for the atom. And when you learn about Bohr's model, uh, we usually just talk about the hydrogen model, or sorry, the hydrogen atom. You don't really go into the other atoms. And so what you have is the nucleus and a single electron. And so what did his his model say? Well, he said that um, you have these energy levels Around the nucleus that grow in uh, radius, right? So if you're at the Mm. lowest, that's the
0: difference, by the way, between that between Bohr and Rutherford. That Rutherford's model does not describe the energy levels, okay, and Bohr's does. So that's that's your difference.
1: And it's actually a lot more complicated to um, like describe these energy levels when you have more than one electron. So that's why we just explain it with one electron in the hydrogen atom. So you have these. These energy levels and these energy levels are quantized, you know, which is why you know uh, we we use we we teach this in a quantum mechanics course because it takes you through like the history of how what we know today has come about, and of course the Bohr model of the atom was very very groundbreaking, and here's why, and when you realize this, at least for me, when when I was learning this. In, in class I was like this makes so much sense there's experimental proof and all that stuff this is amazing okay now let me explain it so you have these energy levels electrons can emit or absorb packets of light aka photons okay and obviously as Ray just explained photons can have different quantized energies as well and so to go from one energy level to the other, it's actually—I'm not going to get too mathematical—but you need a certain amount of energy to either climb the uh, the energy level ladder, and when you go down an energy the energy level, you have to emit a photon of a certain energy. And so, the reason why the energy levels. Increase in energy the further away you are from the nucleus is because what's quantized in a um, in an atom or for for an electron going around an atom is the angular momentum and so if you if you I yeah I was gonna say like if you draw the <laughs> the wave that goes around what you have to do is kind of match up the wave but I guess we're not really talking about wave functions. Um, but w- what I was going to say is that um, the further away you are, the bigger your like, if you calculate angular momentum, there is a factor um, of distance away from your point of rotation. And so the more uh, energy you have, the further away, because you're not changing the mass of the, um, of the electron. So the, the more energy you have, the further away you have to be from the center. The reason why this is groundbreaking, though, is because people would look at uh, like they would burn elements and they would look at the spectrum of light that comes from th- that emission, right? Or if you look at stars, which is the same thing, just hydrogen, and other elements uh, giving emitting photons. Uh, you would see like the visual spectrum, of course, and you can also analyze uh, above and below the visual spectrum, but you would see these these lines of just like a certain wavelength just missing. And for so long, people were just like, okay, what what do these lines mean, first of all? And why is it that when we look at hydrogen, we always see the same lines? When we look at a different metal, a different gas or whatever, we see different lines and different spots and all that stuff, but it's always constant. And what actually explains this is the energy levels. And so when you look at um, a hydrogen atom, you look at the hydrogen spectrum, you'll see a line at the exact position where, if you were to calculate, as Rehan said, you do the energy is equal to Planck's constant times the frequency. You take the frequency at which, in the spectrum of light, there's a line, there's like a missing, a missing. Photon, let's say, Um, what happens is that that photon is the exact energy that it takes for an electron to go, for example, from the first energy level to the second energy level. So when you're asking, you know, where does this light go? Why is there a missing, like, slit in the spectrum? It's because the the hydrogen atoms would absorb that light and move up uh, an energy level, and then of course Mm -hmm. there are different uh, missing pieces at different spots because to go from 2 to 3, 3 to 4, you need different amounts of energy which corresponds to different um, wavelengths of light. So, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: And that's, that's that's Bohr for you. At least that was that was one of his very large contributions. And one thing I did want to mention, I did search it up. And yeah, so Einstein was actually the very first one to prove that it does come in particles. Yep. Newton had thought about it the wave-particle duality nature of Young's double-slit experiment was actually shown in 1925. But even though the experiment was done in 1801, it was basically just showing that light and electrons could be thought of as waves. It wasn't showing that they could be yeah. thought of as particles. No, no, so that I whole particle thing started the, with like, the quantum theory of light that Einstein
1: released. Yeah. So what, what you were saying uh, was that before Einstein... People thought of light as just a wave, and I was saying that's not true. Some hmm. people thought it was a particle, some people thought okay, well, it was
0: a Okay, well, yeah, light. some people thought, but there was no proof. What I'm saying is there, yeah, was, there, no there was no actual proof, proof behind the there fact that it was a wave that was it. a particle. And then Einstein came out and was like, yo, it is. So, yeah, so I, I wasn't entirely wrong. It's just that, yeah, so the double-stud experiment had happened before. It's just that the wave particle nature had come in a little bit later. So, yeah, so that was, you know, one of his very, very famous, uh, v- very famous theories and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I mentioned it I don't know if I did but in 1921 it won him, the, won him the Nobel Prize for the photoelectric effect you know very very well known. Interestingly enough everyone knows him for like E equals mc squared this with special relativity we're gonna get into that but that's not what he won the Nobel Prize for even though that is what he is n- most known for it's actually the photoelectric effect this, this the simple solar panel you know that 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 we all have today. The, the photoelectric effect
1: with. is pretty crazy, though. <laughs>
0: it's amazing. It's it's an amazing way to think about how light distributes energy. And again, very similar to what you just said. That's also how it works, right? You said, well, if an electron wants to... Like, if it's moving up, uh, up an orbital, it's going to be gaining energy. If it's moving down an orbital, it's going to release energy in terms of a photon. So again, if it's basically... If a photon comes into the metal... And it's giving the atom more energy. What's the electron doing? The outermost electron is basically just escaping. So that outermost electron is then what's taken into be electricity.
1: You can explain the setup of the experiment because you haven't done that. With a photoelectric
0: effect? Mm -hmm. I believe. I I mean, I, I I thought I touched on it. Just like, you know, it's just a metal, basically. And there is a wire that runs through it where the electrons from that metal get knocked off into that wire, which then conducts the electricity. So as long as there is light that is traveling at a certain frequency, depending on the metal, and obviously you can do a calculation for the sun and stuff. Hence the photo, photo well, actually, panels.
1: Well, I mean, I think you're, you're yeah. missing like a little bit of detail. Like you have, you have, okay, two, maybe you want to fill it in. Yeah, maybe. Have, what, what am two, I missing? Two metal plates that have an electric potential, uh, difference between them. Right. And, uh, basically you can have like, uh, some kind of, uh, like a light, for example, that will turn on if there's current in between. Like the two plates are connected together by a wire. And then to tell if energy or to tell if electricity is actually being conducted between the plates, you can put like a light or something just to see if, it, if there's uh, electrons running. But essentially what you do is you shine a light onto one of the plates. And I think it's like the negatively charged plate but you shine a light onto it. And then what happens is that depending on the frequency of the light, um, be, of course you, you talked about the, the work function a little bit and that work function yeah. essentially binds the electrons to the negatively charged plate. And so when you shine a light, what, what happens is that these photons uh, are like flying through the air towards the, um, towards the electrons that are bound by the work function. And so if, you're, if your electrons have a certain amount of energy that exceeds the energy of the work function, um, the, the, the photons will be able to knock the, um, knock the electrons away, like off of the, the plate, and then they will be attracted by the other plate, like right? the, the positive mm-hmm. plate. And so the collector plate, yeah, is what it's called. Yeah. And so um, that's exactly what happens, right? If mm-hmm. if the electrons are knocked off of the negative plate onto the positive plate, then you have a current. And so what happens is that you shine the light onto the negative plate, and what you do is you increase the um, the wavelength. And so you start at a wavelength that is low enough so that it doesn't conduct electricity. And then what you do is you increase the wavelength in th- until you actually do start seeing um, electrons uh, being knocked away. And so... Um, do you mean frequency? Yes, I do mean frequency. You mean frequency, <laughs> yeah, right? I, yeah, I, I do you mean increase frequency. increase the frequency. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, because yeah, like you start off with low energy and as you increase yeah, yeah, it, yeah. when that energy equals the work function is when it'll start emitting... But when it exceeds it is when you have electricity, you have a, you have a flow of electricity. Yeah, yeah. And then that's and then that's your whole that's your whole idea behind your photoelectric effect. And it's beautiful. It's, it's a beautiful theory. And I mean, and that's not it, though. That's not it for 1905. Right. Remember, this is this is the year of miracles for Albert Einstein. His second paper that he released in May Of 1905 it was I think it was May and I believe there was also like a like an update or something in June there was like some collaboration and this paper was on something known as Brownian motion so Brownian motion is actually something that was discovered in 1827 by Robert Brown and he saw uh, when he immersed pollen flower pollen into water he saw that even when it was completely stationary like complete at thermal equilibrium in a in a totally isolated environment nothing was affecting it the the individual pollens would would be would be vibrating would be moving in the water and again this might be like well what's the big deal right like but again as a scientist you might be like well why are these things moving and it turns out that that was the very first experimental evidence of an atom of or of atoms basically showing that there is something smaller than d- just water that in the there, in the water there's something in there that's causing these pollen to move anyways Many, many years years later, obviously 1905, this is when Albert Einstein releases this paper on Brownian motion. He basically describes. Now, remember, Brownian motion is also, I I should have mentioned this, is also kind of characterized as random motion because there are all kinds of, there are just atoms in this, in this, uh, in this system. What are atoms doing? They're just moving like individual atoms are just moving in all sorts of directions. There's no, there's no uniformity to them. When you say, like, atoms usually are not all going in the, in the same direction. If you find, for example, an equilibrium or, or some sort of, you know, if you have like a magnetic pull, sure, you can maybe face them in a direction. But on average, or, or individually speaking, all the atoms are just everywhere. Random motion. Einstein comes in and he makes up, he basically devises an equation for this motion. Brownian motion. And it's surprising to everyone, more so because of what this proves. This is the first ever mathematical proof of an atom. Basically saying that atoms in the water is what is causing these pollens to move. So microscopic movements from the pollen. For example, like there might be a little more concentration of atoms moving in one direction than the other. So the pollen is vibrating. There's, there might be a little in the other direction and their pollen is vibrating. So basically, it's just because of this random motion that then Einstein described using this theory that he then called Brownian motion was again explained as the very first proof of an atom. Again, further just breaking science. Just
1: yeah, completely crazy. breaking. Especially because one, yeah. he he kind of discovered that. Well, he didn't discover it, but he like analyzed the situation yeah, came and, to yeah, a conclusion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then later in his own lifetime, he got to see, like, like, all of these advancements in our understanding of the structure of the atom. And then, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know the exact timeline, but by the end of his life until today, like, I... Has has our understanding of, like, the, the, the model of the atom changed that much? I don't think so. Because when we're talking about the classical,
0: just the Bohr-Rutherford model, like, we're still taught that in school, and that is what we learned for a long time, right? Like, the quantum model is taught, you know, in years of university, so I think it's still applicable just for, like, energy levels and stuff, remember. Like, you know, quantum yeah. model is just, like, it just overcomplicates a lot of things, but just to understand the discrete nature of energy levels and everything, you know, just drawing circles around a, around a nucleus works.
1: <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and you actually, yeah. I think you talked about, uh, like the alpha particle experiment in in a previous episode. The gold foil. What yeah. what year was that in?
0: The Rutherford gold foil experiment. Um. I don't know off the top of my head, I can definitely search it up. Okay. Um, I think I think but it yeah, was so before... this, yeah, you wanna maybe give a quick recap for the gold foil experiment? This was Rutherford's
1: experiment that yeah, he did. And actually Bohr worked with Rutherford um, to work on his model and his theory of the atom. But this actually like the way that Bohr came up with his his model is that uh, Rutherford ha- performed this experiment where he shoots alpha particles, positively charged particles to like through this gold foil. Most of the part- most of the atoms or most of the particles would just go through the foil, but some of them would actually be um, deflected at a certain angle and even um, reflected backwards. And so his conclusion was that there has to mm-hmm. be, some like very concentrated area or volume, I guess, um, of positively charged uh, subatomic particles. Yeah. Um, and then mm-hmm. that's when people started thinking about like the the less massive negatively charged particles that would be orbiting around this nucleus. But mm-hmm. um, just the fact that most of the positively charged particles went through implied that, you know, the nucleus is is very small. Because if the nucleus, like for example, the plum pudding uh um what's it called? The plum pudding uh structure the plum pudding and, model. Yeah, the no, plum just the, pl- the plum pudding model, model of the yeah. atom, right? Yeah. We're talking about so yeah if if that was true, then you would see like like tons of deviations for mm-hmm. for, the, for the alpha particles because they would always be in this like electromagnetic field when uh, going through the gold foil but the fact that most of them just went straight through meant that most of the the, the stuff is just nothing right which is actually mm-hmm. true the the nucleus like takes up less than like 0.00 I don't know percent of of the volume of an atom very small percentage yeah. Also this
0: was in 1911 just wanted to mention that. So this was a okay. this was a little this was quite a lot after about 6 years after uh, <clears throat> Einstein's whole uh, Einstein's whole idea of atoms. And again this is also where a lot of them you know uh where you can see a lot of similarities and again the reasoning behind why we chose Bohr and Einstein today, you know, like they 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 come in a lot of equations, they come in a lot of things together and obviously I mean we're going to continue talking about them and it does get a lot more exciting. So yeah, so Maybe you want to continue with mm. the with cool Bohr experiment or something? Yeah, so that, the uh... thing
1: about Bohr is that mm-hmm. he was very involved with the future generations of physicists. And now, how dedicated was he? Okay, well, so in 1916, it. he was offered a professorship at Copenhagen University, but... The at, at the time, the physics department at the university was very small. It was just like this tiny section of the university. And he was like, you know what? You know, I'll, I will accept the professorship and all that stuff. But I want to build an institute for theoretical physics at this university. And, you know, you know his, his demands went through and the university built... The Niels Bohr Institute of Physics. I think the name changed over time. Now it's just called the Niels Bohr Institute. I think before it was called like Institute of Theoretical Physics, something like that. And what he did was he hosted a bunch of you know up and coming uh, physics students from I think mostly mostly around Europe and 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 uh, a little bit. Uh, a, a few students came from America, but it was really like the, the top students that came to this university. And, you know, th- this is a, a crazy move for, for Bohr because he said, you know what? People can be smart, right? You can think of smart ideas, but the way you move physics forward is by connecting smart people together so that they can connect their ideas and move forward, you know, like, like, where would your insert favorite physicist here, right, be without communication with the outside world, you know, peer reviews of their papers, and, and just chats about their ideas, like, this is Mm -hmm. what I think about this, and then someone else pulls out, and he's like, no, this is what it is, here's why, here's my experiment, all this stuff, so what Bohr did for the physics world is that he brought together the smartest physicist's the smartest students from all around the world to come study in one location and to just bounce ideas off of each other. And uh, yeah, so this is not like an experiment or anything, but this is what Hmm. Bohr did. Um, And I think it opened in 1921 in March. So a hundred years ago, a little bit more than a hundred years ago now. But um, yeah, the thing is, the thing with this institute is that it hosted... A lot of students for example werner heisenberg who actually went to this, this institute and you know i'd Classic. love to talk about heisenberg as well but the the thing about this this institute is that um a lot of the students or i guess a few of the students were working on quantum mechanics at the time or i guess at the time it was called matrix mechanics and then you had uh, other professors in other locations that were working on wave mechanics it turns out that matrix mechanics and wave mechanics are just two different ways of explaining the same thing, and they're actually um, compatible with each other. Meaning that, like, you know, if you, if you add, like, if you do multiplication, but you do it, like, cross and add, or there's different ways to multiply, but it, it all does the same thing. It's the same idea here. Um, the, the students at the Bohr Institute... They were dealing with uh, the matrix mechanics side, the more like the the quantized uh, explanation for for what we see at a small scale. Nowadays, it's just called quantum mechanics, but back in the day, it was separated because there were different philosophies behind different ideas. Schrödinger. Oh, we should talk about Schrödinger actually. <laughs> like Schrödinger is also in, a in this future time episode. But
0: these, all these guys are in this. This time yeah. period is insane. Like this time period, the yeah. twentieth century is such a revolutionary time period for science. Yeah, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. And by yeah, the so way, continue.
1: I should have mentioned this earlier. But if you are interested with all that we're talking about right now, um, I read a book called Quantum. I think like colon, the great debate about the nature of reality by Manji Kumar, crazy book, crazy book goes through the entire history from beginning all the way to like the end of this, like quantum revolution, like starting with like, how did like this idea of quantized energy and, and all like, why, why are things quantized at all? You start mm-hmm. with the very beginning in the 1800s with with, with Max Planck, having discovered uh, black body radiation, and then so on and so on. Einstein comes into the picture. Bohr, uh, Bell, which we can talk Ooh, about. Yeah, also. Um, oh yeah, Bell's theorem. Sure oh yeah. All these can... things they they come together, yep. and you know somehow mm-hmm. we formulate this explanation, and uh, this is where we are now. Anyways,
0: yeah. Um, and the interesting thing about the th- interesting thing about Einstein is especially again even though he did start the paper on the quantum nature of light he didn't actually and we're going to get into this he wasn't actually a big fan of quantum mechanics mm-hmm. he was actually a very heavy believer in the hidden variables theory and and we are going to get into that now it's still too early cuz we're still 1905 we are going to get into his whole hidden variables and you know his whole his whole uh, uh, phase where he just completely rejected quantum mechanics yeah. and uh, he said, uh, wrote the very famous pra- uh, phrase he does not play dice. You know yeah. basically we might talking run out about of the time. fact that the universe can't um, be probabilistic. I mean I think I think we near, I mean near the end. Yeah, but like I think I think I think we can close like maybe touch up on some of this stuff because it's like mm-hmm. really cool especially in his life. So anyways, continuing on to 1905. uh, A lot of things in 1905. Don't worry, I'm going to hurry it up though. In 1905, the last paper that he published, and I think you know where this is going because there's only one more remaining, the special theory of relativity. So this happened in June of 1905. However, the very famous equation E equals MC squared wasn't released until September of that same year. And he basically, I believe, updated his paper, including that equation, even though that exact equation wasn't actually written on his paper. It was it was actually a a Pythagorean identity that can be reduced to E equals MC squared that we very well know now.
1: But again, the why, big thing that reminded me yeah, it was, of like of like an artist like dropping a single he's like he's like oh yeah by the way here's a track here here's equals mc squared everyone's like (laughs) just like just an extra guy just a a little bit
0: of an extra one (laughs) yeah so uh, the big thing with this is not really the equation or or like the math behind it because everyone's like oh equals mc no the idea is what that equation means and that equation means that or basically it represents a relationship between energy and mass, something, someone—I mean, no one had ever really thought of before—that mass is nothing but energy, and can be converted into energy, and energy again can can be represented as some level of mass. So, understanding that energy and mass are interchangeable, basically, they're that they're correlated to one another, was his big his big special relativity discovery. And we, we have a whole episode on it, but like, it's a really cool, I mean, it's obviously one of his, one of his most known theories. And, uh, and yeah, so that completes his, uh, his Anus, no, Anus Mirabilis. <laughs> I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Anus, I think it's Anus, right? I'm not sure. I'm not know. sure. Continuing though, continuing though, in 1910, we have a very famous question answered also by Albert Einstein. Why is the sky blue? Now, you must be wondering, well, wait, I learned in high school that's called Rayleigh scattering. For any one of those guys that remembers Rayleigh scattering. However, Rayleigh scattering basically says longer wavelengths get scattered at different ranges than shorter wavelengths. What Einstein proved in this paper in 1910 was the atomic nature of the scattering. Something that hadn't been done because what Raleigh scattering simply represents is the angle at which the light hits the air, basically refracts, like just, you know, hits all the like like hits the general air, not the individual molecules. Einstein came up with a paper and an explanation for what is happening in the atomic level. And he basically spoke about how the scattering occurs on the molecular level, something that hadn't been done before. And again, answering the age-old question, why is the sky blue, with a very complicated answer, but uh, basically just like a like an like a like an advanced the Raleigh scattering, just continuing his theory, right? So yeah, so that's a little bit of him. Uh, you want to maybe talk about Bohr before we get into the big sure. general theory? Yeah. So kind
1: of, if I had to pick one last thing to say about Bohr, it would be definitely the conversations that he's had with Albert Einstein himself, right? The biggest Ooh, crossover yeah, sure. in, in the history of all of physics. Um, and these conversations happened at the Slové conferences, um, which was this, uh, uh, like a summit of the, the best physicists around the world. This Now, this was very subjective, of course. Um, Slové himself, would just compile this list. And he did leave out some people and it did get kind of political, but we're not going to get into that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But Bohr and Einstein met up uh, a couple times, actually. And they talked about their views on quantum mechanics. And Einstein was actually against Bohr's ideas. Bohr and his, uh, his new students at his institute... Came up with the ideas of um, like the uncertainty principle, and there are just some things that you don't know. Like the universe is probabilistic. The most you can know about something is the probability distribution. And and Einstein was completely against that. He was saying that um, the universe is deterministic. God does not play dice the famous quote and um for example um oh yeah sorry you you also said um um hidden variables right what, what are mm-hmm. hidden variables? hidden variable okay. theory?
0: he was a big he was a big uh, ad- advocate for that one
1: yeah, yeah so a sure. hidden variable is basically like uh it's like information that we don't have access to but is still there right and this this hidden variable could be due to like lack of equipment we just don't know how to like extract this information or it's just like there's no way to actually get this information but it's out there it's out there somewhere anyways the point of like hidden variables is it's it's basically admitting that we are not smart enough for like to tackle this issue here one of the Mm -hmm. one of the problems was um like the entangled particle, where... Mm, we get uh, it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, like, like briefly, if you have like a spin zero particle and then it splits off into two, like in two directions, and then you have like one of them is spin up, one of them is spin down, so that, you know, it cancels out. Uh, the, the, the thing is that if one person detects one of the particles, they know exactly what the other particle is even if the particle is light years away. And this made no sense to Einstein because, you know, that's kind of like um, relaying information across the universe faster than the speed of light, which is very against the rules. And so this is why he believed in hidden variables. He said, this is not possible. There has to be like something hidden that we don't know yet, but um, <clears throat> will exp- like there's a bigger theory out there that will encompass... What we know about quantum mechanics, what we know about um, general relativity, and it'll all make sense when we do figure out this mm-hmm. larger theory. And uh, Bohr was like, "I don't think so. I think like this is just this is just the un- what the universe is, right?" The uncertainty principle Einstein really didn't like <laughs> because it was saying that um, you know you can't know position and momentum, but intuitively you think well. I can just find the momentum, find the position, and, and you know how how can I not know both? There are really subtle um, arguments um, that you can make mm-hmm. to show that this is not possible, which we have talked about in inventions. What was it? what was the episode called? Historic inven- inventions, something or experiments. That it was a history. recent
0: episode. It was it was it was. It was a play on the history of physics episodes, but it wasn't a history of physics episode. We were talking it, it, it was about famous called experiments.
1: experiments That Changed History. Changed and history. Um, mm. Yeah. Cool,
0: cool, cool. Yeah, that's a really yeah. cool episode. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so because you already mentioned, um, I guess I can go a little ahead because I, I just want to talk about like a few more really notorious things that Einstein did. But because you already spoke about entanglement, I guess I can start with that. So in, in 1935, uh, uh, Einstein... Podolsky and Rosen, and Nathan Rosen and uh, Boris Podolsky, came up, or not came up, but wrote the paper on the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen paradox, now known as the EPR paradox, which basically, as as you just said, is asking the question, well, or not asking the question, but the paradox, the whole paradox, is basically how can we know this information? How can this information be relayed across the universe? You know like seemingly faster than the speed of light right now the whole idea behind this however now that even though the epr paradox is a very famous paradox it was solved and it was proven to well not work because the whole idea behind quantum entanglement is that as as barker just said again if you have a spin zero particle you send one with spin half one with spin negative half right the moment you you don't know which one is which Let's say you send them on the opposite sides of the universe, you measure one, you see that one is positive half, you already know instantaneously that the other one is negative half. You know that for a fact, for a 100% fact, because that is simply the nature of these particles. They're entangled. And however, again, the whole, the whole Einstein version was that, well, information is being traveled faster than the speed of light. No, 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 no. The Copenhagen interpretation or the quantum mechanical interpretation is that, well, the moment these particles left the spin zero like the spin zero broke up into these two there's a there's a thing called a wave function that basically represents these the position and the states of these particles so the wave function of both of these particles are identical throughout history until we make an observation and the moment we make an observation quantum mechanically speaking This wave function, again, that simply represents that it can either be plus half or minus half, it collapses into one of them. So, via quantum theory, we do not break any of the paradoxes, any of the known laws that we come to have understood today. Because all of our quantum theory is based off of the fact that the universe is in fact probabilistic, or the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, at least that's today. So when these guys tried to release it in 1835, it was obviously a a monumental thing. And I believe Bohr was a big part in, well, proving it wrong. In basically saying that, well, no, it's not a paradox because you can explain it using using quantum mechanics. And I believe all the way up until Einstein's death, he did not believe, right? He did not believe in quantum mechanics whatsoever. He was very fixated on the fact that we just don't know enough about the universe and hidden variable theory right
1: yeah that's right yeah
0: yeah that's a that's the, that's a pretty sad pretty sad reality but you know well we have quantum theory today it makes sense today who knows in like 200,000 years maybe we have a new a yeah, brand
1: new theory. I mean, einstein like he has the the einstein's biggest blunder or whatever it's called where he Yeah, he I was going to get into that it with it general time. relativity next. Yeah. Yeah. Um well essentially it goes to show that you know, even when Einstein is wrong, he's right. So maybe, you know, <laughs> maybe like... You never like, know, man. Maybe a, this guy knows years, something we don't. In a hundred years, something will come out and it'll be like, oh yeah, no, Einstein was completely right. and But now we know and now we're smarter. And, you know, they'll look back to the math and physics podcast and be like, wow, they really could just <laughs> like do this one experiment and figure out like how obvious it is. But yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so that's uh I mean that that's that's the power of Einstein, right? Like he, and again when when you just said the biggest blunder I I let's uh, let, let's get into that maybe as the closing. I I did want to get into Bose-Einstein condensates, but I guess like that's just like an extra. he's done a lot of things in his life, man. Like I don't think we can mm. get into all of it. He's done a lot of cool things. But anyway, let's just end on the highest note, the general theory of relativity. So in 1915, Albert Einstein writes this paper and interestingly enough, he had started to think about it. Well, after special relativity itself, he started to think about, well, what if we start changing these frames to, like, to non-inertial to non frames? But in 1907 was the first, I believe, uh, the first instance of him actually thinking about the relationship between acceleration and gravity and thinking about, well, is gravity, what we see on Earth, the same thing as accelerating in a spaceship? And this is a very famous Einstein's, this is one of Einstein's postulates, where, uh, you know, you flying in a spaceship is the same as you on Earth. And you're like, well, how is that possible? And that is basically, you know, a consequence of what he proves here. So the general theory of relativity is basically a way to say, screw you to Newton. And say that, well, gravity isn't anything. It's not really a force or anything. It is simply a consequence of what we call the space-time manifold. What we call space-time, or space, well, what we call space, you know, when our Earth is sitting on some block of space. Gravity is simply the consequence of that block having mass. Anything with some amount of mass will depress The uh, the, the space-time curvature, like it's called. And he came up with this idea that, well, gravity isn't really an attractive anything. It's not a force whatsoever, but it's simply because, well, space is curved. So everywhere you're going, the reason you look like you're moving in an orbit is not because you're actually moving in an orbit. You're just going straight, but it's space that is actually curved around the body to make it look like a circle. But what you're actually doing is simply going straight, but it's space that's curved. So he explained what we see in, you know, in in reality, in nature, in a radically different way, using the general theory of relativity. And in, I believe he published it actually in 1916. And then in 1919, a, um, a bunch of A bunch of astronomers, as you were mentioning before in the podcast, they were witnessing an eclipse where they saw the first proof of gravitational lensing, i.e. gravity bending light. Again, if Newton was right and gravity is a force, gravity or again, gravity should not affect light, right? Because light is massless. However, Einstein proved that, again, gravity has nothing to do with mass or at least not the mass of the object. It's simply with the curvature of space time. So because space-time is curved around the sun, we can see objects that we generally would never be able to see because of the fact that the light is curving. And again, this was simply a consequence of his general theory. And that's mm. that's Einstein for you, you know? Revolutionize science in
1: 20 years! Less! A great way to Crazy. think about this, which is it always blows people's minds when they think about this. But imagine this, okay? Imagine you have a rock... And you're in the middle of deep space there's no like gravitational field anywhere around and let's pretend like you're a ghost you don't have a mass okay so you're sitting (laughs) in the middle of nowhere and you throw the rock and and the rock draws like a path behind it right you're just gonna see like a straight path it's gonna float in a single direction at a constant speed that's all you get okay now Let's let's come back to Earth. You have that same rock, and you throw that rock in the same direction. What happens to that path? That path gets curved down towards the earth. But that's not a con like that's, that has nothing to do with with the rock. It has to do with where the rock is in space. It just so happens that the space is curving its path. And the thing about um, space-time and why it's so hard to think about curved space-time is because you need to, consi- need to consider the time dimension as well. And that's why I say, like, imagine the path being drawn out. So in deep space, there's no, there's no curvature happening, right? You just throw the rock and throughout space-time, all four dimensions, the, the, the path is completely straight and it will continue to be straight. But on Earth, or let's say you're in Earth's orbit and you throw a rock in front of you, that path, depending on the velocity of the rock, of course, but let's pretend it's going at the perfect velocity. No, well, if right you're thing. in orbit,
0: if you're in orbit, it will remain in orbit, right? Because it's already yeah. traveling at like 7,000
1: plus kilometers. It's yeah, like, but uh, let's say, uh, for, yeah. for example, you throw it like behind you and then it slows. But the, the point is, right? Okay, well, <laughs> <I> understand. <laughs> the, the point is that if you throw that rock, that rock is not just going to go in one direction and just keep going because the Mm -hmm. space time that it's in is literally curved. And so that's going to, as time plays out, the path of that rock will be curved and you can literally see it with your own eyes. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, a
0: very, a very famous uh, thought about bent space is, you know, like putting a ball on a carpet but that's a terrible way to think about it, because yeah, what yeah. you think about is that the ball that anything you throw outside will eventually come in. But that's just not how space works. Mm-hmm. Right. That's just not how how it works. It, there is a certain level after which you cross, you will go in. Right. That is simply a fact with anything. If you're if you're really close to the planet and your orbit you know has has some certain properties of hitting the planet on 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 your next cycle well you will hit the planet you know but if your orbit is large enough again that carpet definition doesn't make you understand it because then again it all eventually comes to the center but that's not actually what space is it's more like a it's more like just a little blip and then f- and then and then and then okay I guess I can't really. Anyway. I, I just thought about it. I can't let's, really explain yeah, just, it too well, just especially to the audio here. listeners. This <laughs> might be terrible. There's not really a way to do it, but anyways, yeah. there are like you know, uh, visuals of how to think about curved space-time. So like you might want to search up. And again, this is all a quant- uh, all a consequence of the general theory of relativity. Think about thinking about space as you know a thing that can curve, a thing that can move. The famous expression, matter, nope. Space tells matter, no, is it the other way around? Wait, wait, wait. Space tells matter how to move, matter tells space-time how to curve. That's the famous quote, right? Yeah. Matter, yeah.
1: Or is it the other way around? Yeah, matter it's tells space-time. It's space the other time- way around. No, you, 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 First you have to say matter tells space-time how to curve, and then spaced, curved space-time tells matter how to move. Matter how to move, right? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, <laughs> I, I, I messed up the
0: order. But yeah. So the again, the idea is basically that matter is simply moving along a path that is set by spacetime, right? What if space-time is bent? Whatever, however you throw it, it's gonna follow that path, you know. And mm-hmm. that's the beauty. And that's the beauty of this theory. And that's the beauty so, of yeah.
1: That's uh, general relativity. That's Einstein mm-hmm. and Bohr for you. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, let us know who you want us to talk about on the next episode of, uh, the history of physics. We're pretty much open to doing anybody. Uh, yes, Rehan. we're doing
0: Turing, like for sure. Uh, okay. I, I really, I'm re I really want to do Turing because I started no. reading up on him and he has some very interesting computational problems. He's like, he, he's the, he's the godfather of computer science. He's the guy that started it all. So it might be a really interesting conversation with Turing. Maybe we can...
1: I kind of want to do Nikola Tesla, to be honest. So we might do Tesla and Tesla Turing. And, Tesla and Turing? Why not? I mean, again, I think yeah, this episode
0: not? was very apt. Very, very apt because these guys go together hand in hand. You know, quantum theory, quantum rejector. And then one is again following Planck's footsteps. One again deriving a lot of his theories from Planck. So they're very similar time frames like timelines, like when they were born and stuff, and they have very similar ideas about the universe. So it's a, it was a very nice very nice uh, episode that we had today with both mm-hmm. the gentlemen. But maybe maybe Tesla's hearing next time, who knows.
1: So Let's see. Uh, make sure Let's to see. catch us live maybe on Instagram at math.physics.podcast and make sure to give this yeah. episode a like, a rating, give the podcast a follow. who knows what'll happen maybe we'll give away a million dollars you never know Uh, (laughs) that would be the day (laughs) so yeah this has been episode number 61 of the math and physics podcast i'm your host parker
0: and i'm ray and we will see you soon bye guys